Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Hello and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. Wherever you are, thanks for tuning in. My name is Dion Gribben. This is episode 41, the Terms of Trade edition of the podcast. Well, we've got a few topics to talk about this week. I'm going to talk a fair bit about what's sort of been happening in the US as well. But as always, we'll start and have a look at how the markets went this week. The ASX 200 was just, just up. It was up 0.1%. So we can say that that's been a six weekly gain for the index. So we really barely edged that one in. It's getting less and less each time, so maybe on, on, on maybe on the current track record we'll be down this week based on the, the way it's been going. But got a bit of a green finish there for the week. The US markets were not as good. The S&P 500 actually fell about 1%. The NASDAQ was down 0.7%. The US market is kind of, was kind of limping along this week. On one hand, you have the country recording around or just over 3,000 deaths a day or around that mark at the moment due to COVID-19. They even, they've also just gone over 300,000 total dead. Um, and that's, and if you have look at the three and seven day moving average of deaths in the US, that is still climbing, which is not a good indicator of it stopping anytime soon, especially off the back of the Thanksgiving weekend and it's winter in the US and not just the Thanksgiving weekend, but we're about to enter, or we pretty much are entering the Christmas New Year season. Although as I am noting and recording this on a Saturday in in the afternoon here in Australia, the New York Times reported or sort of breaking news that the FDA in America, the Food and Drug Administration, they have cleared the Pfizer vaccine for emergency use. Uh, Pfizer saying that they can supply about 25 million doses before the end of the year and about 100 million uh, in the US by March, you might see a bit of a bump in futures or the, the market come Monday when it opens. On the spending front, there is still no deal in terms of a stimulus package in the US. Now, December 18 is the date in which legislators, generally speaking, will head home for the holidays. There are kind of two key outstanding bits of work to be done before they should go on holidays that for the first one is that stimulus package which we just mentioned the second is the government spending bill so currently the government's the US government's funded up until that December 18 date but both well that needs to be ex- extended as well and it kind of needs to be done within the next week both of them the budding of heads is down to how money will go to people so the current white house bill which is the one directed from Steve Mnuchin, who's the Secretary of Treasury. That includes a new $600 direct payment. So you remember earlier in the year, they had those $1,200 like coronavirus checks or corona checks that the Americans got. So the White House wants to do another one of them, but half that. So they want to do $600 as a direct payment to people. The Democrats' version or that what they want to do is increase the jobless benefit by $300. So not not a direct payment to everyone, but an increase in the actual, what people take in if they're unemployed. 
So it's similar to how we boosted our unemployment payments in Australia. So with the job seeker, that was uh, boosted from the normal, the normal rate. They, the Democrats want to actually increase it by $300 for those out of a job. So that's where the mess currently stands. No doubt it will be quite a big week for markets if all of this gets across the line and especially if there is some kind of payment directly to people. I think something that something's been I've been learning a little bit more about and it's worrying me about the US economy is rental evictions. There was a report this week in the Washington Post by Heather Long. It focused on this very topic. And I'll backtrack a little bit because one of the initiatives from, I think this came from Trump directly, from, so from his administration, has been a federal rental eviction moratorium. So whilst this doesn't pay for or cancel people's rent, it does mean that they can fall behind in their rental payments, say if they were made, say if they were unemployed because of the pandemic, and not get booted out of their home. But just yeah, just to be clear on it, the moratorium just delays the rent. So it means that you can just rack up this big bill in overdue rental amounts. So the Washington Post had a report during the week. The data in it that they cite comes from Moody's Analytics. And the numbers are about 12 million renters in America that owe an average of $5,850 in back rent and overdue utilities, which is heaps. The data also shows about 21% of those are so 21% of the 12 million are families with children. And that's an important point to consider because when we say 12 million renters are behind in that much rent, that's the renters themselves. It doesn't tell the whole story necessarily about housing displacement that may um, affect children, elderly parents who might live with renters, all those kind of things. And you read about some of these individual stories about people who, uh, there's one about a lady who lost a job and then, she almost got a job back, but then the, the new COVID surge in the States caused that that company to pull the job off out or back. She owes she owed like four thousand in rent. She's basically pawning off household items like family jewelry and like, you know, PlayStation 4 and stuff like this just to get by. I think that to round this point out though, the reason why this is concerning is that federal moratorium on rental evictions ends on December 31. And like we said, it's not as if the macro prospects of the economy are showing that a lot of positive signs are outside coronavirus. If you even just, if you just ignored that, the jobs numbers we have spoken about here, I think that was last week's episode, but the monthly payrolls came in for November were 245,000. If you recall, that was quite well below expectations and kind of showing that the clawing back of jobs that were lost has really slowed down at the moment. So it's not just that we're still, or it's not just that their economy is still trying to claw back those lost jobs, but the rate in which they're clawing it back has really slowed down. But we'll stay in the US and talk, we'll jump over to their financial markets because it was a really big week for some high profile IPOs, including one that we. I thought we wouldn't actually see this year when we expected to. But the first one we'll talk about is food delivery service DoorDash. They went public during the week and it went really big on its first day. The shares were pretty close to doubling on its first day. The actual IPO offer would have had you buying shares at 102 US dollars each and they immediately jumped at open to 182 US dollars 
And but the, for the week, I checked before they've closed out the week at one hundred and seventy five dollars per per share. So you'd still be very happy if you were part of that IPO. It gives the company quite a big valuation, especially given that its nature, which is it's not it's an unprofitable company at the moment. But that is not that uncommon in the food delivery business. So, but the, the tailwind behind a company like DoorDash is their market position in the US is is quite strong. Plus. Globally this year, you've seen services like DoorDash or, or Uber Eats have, they've been getting quite a workout with, you know, the contactless, contactless delivery, people who are isolating or in lockdown or whatever, opting to order food in from their favorite places as opposed to going out or they might not be allowed to go out. I was reading a Forbes article which cited that consumer spending in the food delivery channel has grown by triple digits this year alone. Which makes which is not that surprising given COVID, so it's certainly pushing a company like DoorDash along right now. It's just become well, it becomes like a matter of their growth and how they can maintain growth in a way that satisfies investors. Now that they're listed, I was thinking about whether there's a risk of a consumer pullback on services like this after, you know, say say things get whatever normal is but after vaccines are rolled out and countries start to emerge on the other side of the pandemic i mean it's just i'm just speculating here but i wonder whether services like that would suffer if people are more opting to get out and and eat out and and all that kind of stuff the other big ipo this week was airbnb that's one that i wasn't sure whether we would see this year they actually did manage to double their shares on ipo day this week actually if they actually slightly more than doubled their shares on day one. So they closed Thursday trade, which is so Friday morning our time at $144.71 per share. The actual IPO buy-in price was $68 US dollars per share. And for the week, they closed at just over $139 per share. Interesting note here from an article in Bloomberg this week, and this was posted on December 10th by authors Olivia Carvel, Katie Roof, and Crystal C. Quote, Airbnb's market value based on its outstanding shares makes it the world's biggest online travel company. Its $86.5 billion market value narrowly tops booking holdings, like bookings.com, for example. Their market cap eclipses Expedia Group and TripAdvisor. They also top that of the four largest public hotel chains combined now. The article a little bit further down talks to the year that has been for a business like Airbnb. Quote, the company's IPO plans were put on hold in March as the pandemic ground global travel to a halt. By April, room bookings and experiences had plunged 72%. Airbnb rolled out a blanket refund policy and doled out more than $1 billion in cancellation fees. What has been interesting for Airbnb is they... Uh, yeah, among the broader travel sector, were very smashed this year. But the story of Airbnb started to turn around a little bit this year. They started to get this tailwind in the in more in the later half, uh, specific to domestic bookings. So, so international travel still down worldwide, still Im- impacting Airbnb. But where you'd start to see this resurgence for the company is people looking to book more localized holidays or you know weekends away. So, for example, if you're someone who lived in Sydney, so getting away to, say, the Blue Mountains, or if you're someone in Brisbane going to the Sunshine Coast, those kind of things 
had started to really pick up for, for a company like Airbnb. They're very short distance kind of bookings, but the kind of getaways that people, I guess these are the kind of getaways that people could only really do. And this is in some ways a phenomenon that others in the same sector can't benefit from. And I'm not picking on anyone in particular, but say, let's say you take a, a very well-known hotel chain like Hilton, you know, they can't really take advantage of the same thing because these are primarily CBD-based accommodation offerings. I imagine they rely a lot on business travel and perhaps big events in cities which are non-existent this year. So that's been a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a green shoot for Airbnb. Regardless of the year that it's had, there's still this, well, there's there's still a nice drive towards, I guess what is, I guess what was ultimately the original draw of something like Airbnb to stay in a place that's a bit more homely and we can do that in more sort of localized domestic holidays that that we go on that are close to home. I'm going to stay in the US and look at some tech stuff. This one, we're going to talk about breakups and antitrust lawsuits and specific to Facebook because Facebook was in the news this week. I'll quote this summary now, which was also from Bloomberg. It's written by Kurt Wagner and Sarah Fryer. Quote, the US Federal Trade Commission took a major step toward the possible breakup of Facebook by formally filing an antitrust lawsuit against the technology giant, accusing it of abusing its monopoly powers in social networking to stifle competition. The article goes on to reference issues or some of the parts of this lawsuit is about the acquisitions that Facebook has made over the years, specifically Instagram and WhatsApp. If you ever want a good read on Facebook specifically, there's a book by Roger McNamee. It's called Zucked. It's very much worth your time. It's one of the topics he talks about, which he actually in the book, he extends this to Google as well. But he talks about how these companies have built protective walls around their business and their operating model through further acquisitions. So in the book, he will cite Google's acquisition of YouTube as probably its most important one that it ever did. For Facebook, he cites Instagram, WhatsApp and Oculus as the most important acquisitions that Facebook has made. Because and you know, because at the end of the day, these companies are not silly, right? The, the, the people who are ahead of the top of these firms, they know that like some of the biggest markets in the world for them have had some sort of user stagnation over the years. And looking when you look at statistics for younger generations, especially those who are currently aged in their teenage years, they don't look super good for Facebook specifically. These age brackets will tend to use something like Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, but Facebook is not nearly as popular. I guess, and I guess what I mean by that is then they know that there's, you know, we've seen a history of a bit of a cyclical nature, not, not even, maybe not cyclical is the right word, but you've seen social media platforms rise and fall and they would be aware of that and trying to mitigate that. And, and so I guess part of this lawsuit is that they've done that through acquisitions. Now, none of this news that I'm talking about you know, in any way 100% solidifies that a breakup will occur. There would have to be quite a lot of movement and uh, there would have to be a move by Congress to actually for that to occur here. And Facebook's not the only one that would be talked about in sort of antitrust crosshairs. If you're a shareholder, I don't know if it means anything for the short term at the moment. I mean, Facebook is down a couple percent this week. Uh, long term, if a breakup did occur... It might be bad specifically for the Facebook business itself because there is a lot of growth that it actually derives from Instagram because Instagram will have a lot of users that don't 
so I uh, hang on, how I explain this? There's I guess that Instagram has a lot of people on it that don't use Facebook. And given given the success of rival apps like Snapchat and TikTok, Instagram over the years, as you would have very well noticed, have started to incorporate features and parts of those apps, basically copied those rival apps. And more recently, Instagram's trying to, or it is tying in e-commerce solutions to the app. I know that that's, I've been reading that that's kind of what they're trying to do with WhatsApp as well. So, and they're trying to link it in that way. So, you know, WhatsApp is not really a monetized service, but they do have a ton of users and a ton of data, but they hope to do, they hope to be in payments and e-commerce and use WhatsApp for that as well. You might actually end up okay if there was a split as a shareholder because it's likely that you, in the same way that when West Farmers split off Coles, you ended up with a share of Coles as well. You would probably end up with a share of the companies that have been taken away so you'd still retain ownership. And sometimes that can actually be a good thing. But ultimately, I think it's probably a little bit too early to get super duper worried. I say that though as someone who doesn't own shares in Facebook. I have indirect exposure through a NASDAQ ETF, but... Short term, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bit of stagnation or not not a, not a lot of movement in Facebook shares because everyone will just sort of be waiting to sort of process this antitrust lawsuit, think about the potential implications of it even being successful, for example. And that's probably what investors are, are going through at the moment. We'll jump back to Australia for the last part. And so, I mean, some of the new, and this is not something I've really touched on in, in the podcast a great deal, but it's just the crazy rise in the iron iron ore price. I, I find it interesting, but I don't. I guess like I'm not invested in any uh, minerals or mining companies. But it's, at the start of the year, the iron ore price was cl- around the 87 US dollars a ton. It's now 156 US dollars a ton. When I last checked, I was listening to someone the other day, and they were saying how they checked for a, I think for a report they were writing or something. And then they went back just to double check it and it had already gone up by several dollars. But the the crazy, those the, the big price jumps in the iron ore price have been really apparent in the last about 30 days because it was only around $115 about you know four weeks ago and it's really rocketed up to that 156 now. And which is why you've seen our mining stocks do so, well, the ones in the iron ore game do so well because if they can... I guess if they can keep their cost of production down or keep it the same or you know just manage that and but what they're pulling out of the ground in this case has you know almost doubled in price over the year it's just so much extra gravy on top for them I thought it might be good because if you're hearing a lot about this in the news maybe some bit of an explanation about why this is happening and there's a couple of factors at play so the first is China or Chinese demand and we've spoken about the Chinese appetite for iron ore in the past on other podcasts about you know what what their role is uh, in our exports, but I think it's good to always revisit this. And these numbers are quite fresh from the ABS. So this is in their October trade data here. So it says, "quote China continues to be the main export destination for iron ore, with eighty percent of all iron ore exported in October going to China." For comparison, the next two largest destinations are Japan and South Korea, both of which accounted for 6% of the total iron ore value. So that's, I mean, that just goes to show you just how 
because Japan and South Korea are also decent trading partners of ours, but nothing compared to China, especially when it comes to iron ore. So that is that is one reason why there's because there's a big there's a big demand at the moment from China, and part of the reason they're doing it is black economies all over the world they have and you know, suffered this year due to COVID. They are looking to offset that through infrastructure building and hence the need for iron ore uh, for steel in their in their infrastructure building because they're trying to help boost their economy through building. The other issue that's playing on iron ore is there's an, one of the biggest suppliers in the world. I actually think it is the biggest, but because of what's happened, I know that Rio edged out in front of this firm as the biggest supplier in the world for a while. But there's a Brazilian firm, Vale. They... I mean, COVID has played a little bit of a role in because COVID has been quite bad in Brazil on this. But really, the big impact to Vale has been they had a giant uh, tailings dam or a dam failure in 2019. You, you no doubt would have seen this on the news when it happened because hundreds of people died from it. it. These when I say tailings dam, it's effectively like a mining waste that was held back. The dam actually failed. You can go on YouTube and see footage of when the actual dam failed. It's very terrifying actually, but this caused them to, well, that mine specifically was affected. They had to at least partially or look at shut down other mines that had the same kind of dams because they, you know, they were forced to, which they should be, to look at the structural integrity of those dams. Uh, and all in all, to, to get to the point that this really impacted their supply output of iron ore so when you still have this really healthy appetite from the world or especially china for iron ore and one of the biggest producers has been shot in the knee so to speak in terms of what they're trying to put out uh, there's the next best place is australia and that lack of supply has helped to drive up that iron ore price so this is also why you've seen these share price rises in companies like Rio Tinto, Fortescue Metals. Um, and lately, I think the issue for China is, although there's been this tiff between us in terms of tariffs on our exports, obviously things like, like wine more recently, timber, barley, the issue with iron for them is I'm, I'm not, not quite sure they can get the iron elsewhere. That's why you haven't seen that really talked about in terms of tariffs. I could be wrong about that, but most of what I've been reading lately is, as it stands right today, because this can change, they they would struggle to get it, the iron ore elsewhere. It might hurt them more than it hurts us right now. Of course, they would be most likely looking to change that um, through part, I'm sure part of that's through their Belt and Road Initiative. But as it stands, that's why there's still quite a healthy appetite for Australian iron ore outside of all this whacking on tariffs on everything else we, we export. So that's a bit on us. That's a bit on, well, not a bit, a lot of it was on the US as well. I hope you found that interesting. Hopefully the explanation around sort of what's happening with iron ore made a bit of sense. It'd be interesting to see what happens when Vale starts to get production at the same levels that it was, whether China starts taking a bit more from then as opposed to us. We will see. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. This has been episode 41, almost the last one of the year. I think next week might be the last one for the year. We might take a break for a few weeks. 
not think about the markets, just enjoy, enjoy a little bit of time off with our families. Hope you're having a good day wherever you are, wherever you're listening. Be sure to subscribe and if you can leave a review or a star rating on your chosen podcast application, please do. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week. Cheers.